paper here. And I can sweep to my place, grabbing not only my notes, but his. Anyway, the speaker, of course, is Barry Strauss, as you all know, otherwise you wouldn't be here. <clears throat> this is the seventh of eight presentations on loving war, uh, the Mershon Center's strategic uh, uh, initiative for this quarter. And Barry comes to us from Cornell University, where he's a professor, professor of history and classics. He got his BA from Cornell, his PhD from Yale, studied archaeology at the American School in Athens, and is the author of many books, the most recent of which is a sensation, I recommend it to all of you, The Battle of Salamis, the naval encounter that saved Greece and Western civilization, which uh, Washington Post named as one of the best books of 2004. There are many other books, including a comparison of the Korean War and the Peloponnesian War. Uh, he's a past director of Cornell's Peace Studies program, he received Cornell's Clark Distinguished Teaching Award, and we're very lucky to have him here today to speak on the joy of sex, a new theory of Homeric warfare. Well, I want to thank... Um, uh, Jeffrey Parker for that very kind introduction. Uh, I want to thank um, the Mer him and the Mershon Center uh, for inviting me here uh, to speak in this wonderful series on uh, what we make of war. Uh, everyone knows uh, what a magnificent center Mershon is for the study of things military, and I feel very lucky to be speaking here today. I also feel... Um, glad to be speaking about the Trojan War in the Midwest, because it's in the Midwest, in the state of Indiana, uh, where it all began uh, with a man named Henry. Now, most of us better know him, know him better as a man from Germany, um, and better know him as Heinrich than Henry, Heinrich Schliemann, of course, um, uh, who spent time in most of his life in Germany, uh, or that was his essential identification, but also made a fortune in Russia, uh, and came to uh, North America for the California Gold Rush, became an American citizen um, in, uh, the, I believe, in the state of Indiana, and um, was the first excavator of the site of Hisarlik um, in northwestern Turkey, which virtually everyone, though not everyone, uh, would say is the site of ancient Troy. There have been four major excavations at this uh, site since uh, the 1870s, uh, and the fourth one is still going on, uh, led by a German-American team. And uh, to sum up uh, a, a, a somewhat controversial subject, uh, I think the evidence is conclusive that this was Troy, that there was at least one Trojan War, um, and that uh, Troy was destroyed uh, by uh, violence in a war uh, uh, roughly at the end of the Late Bronze Age uh, in about the year 1200 B.C. And we learn a great deal about the Trojan War uh, from archaeology, from the study of documents from the uh, ancient Near East, above all from Hittite documents, and finally, of course, from Homer. So let me now turn more formally to Homer. How does the Trojan War look to a military historian? What would the war really have been like? Would it have been as Homer describes it? 
The short answer is, we don't know. The long answer is, we know enough to be able to say that in some ways it would have been much as Homer describes, in other ways, very different. Helen might well have been the spark for war. Troy was a great city. The Greeks might have sent a large expedition. They might have fought pitch battles before Troy. The various heroes might well have existed, and they might well have taken the city through a ruse like the Trojan horse. But the war would have lasted more like one year than 10 years, and the main military activities would have been seaborne raids on Trojan territory and fruitless assaults on Troy's walls. Pitch battles, if they were fought, would have represented a sideshow and not the main front. And they would have been fought in a different way than Homer describes, with archers playing a leading role and heroes engaging in few rather than many champion battles. The Iliad, of course, emphasizes champion battles between frontline fighters, but that leaves the real soldiers of the Trojan War as forgotten men. Not just the grooms and stable hands, but the archers and slingers and the specialists in storming walls. And who could be more overlooked than the common infantrymen? The Trojan War is the victim of misconceptions. For example, the war is usually thought of as the classic example of land battle between two armies who slugged it out in open combat. In fact, the war is an example of low-intensity operations, unconventional warfare, and sea power. Although the Iliad emphasizes pitch battle, Homer makes clear that most of the war consists of raids on cattle and sheep, of roundups of enemy civilians to sell into slavery, and attacks, often seaborne attacks, on the towns of the Trojan countryside in nearby islands, which led to more livestock and slaves, as well as to inanimate loot. Homer's audience in Iron Age Greece, around 700 BC, fought wars mainly through pitched battle, and pitched battle, understandably, is what they wanted to hear about in an epic poem. But the warfare of the late Bronze Age, that's roughly 1500 to 1200 BC, those three centuries, this era avoided battle because battle was too costly and too risky. And so men preferred low-intensity alternatives. Just to turn quickly to the slides, or some of them, uh, can everyone see this? Lights okay? This is, of course, one image of an ancient of ancient Greek warfare. It is a Corinthian helmet, such as would have been found in archaic and classical Greece, the Iron Age, that is, long after the late Bronze Age. Oops. Let's see. Here is another nope. another similar image. Uh, these are armed infantrymen of the classical age and a tombstone. Piraeus. Uh, they're uh, shown in heroic nudity, as it's called, or at least one of them is. Of course, uh, the warriors in battle would have uh, worn armor, but you can see the shields, you can see the spears, uh, you can see much of what we think of of traditional Greek battle. And here's another image of Greek battle. Uh, this is a vase from the 7th century BC showing, of course, the Trojan horse, an example of unconventional warfare, if there ever was one, but also showing a man who would have not been out of place 
in a hoplite battle, in the battle phalanx of uh, later Greece. Here's another example as well. Again, this is not how soldiers were armed in the late Bronze Age. Come back to the scene uh, later, but for now this is a scene of a siege of Mycenae, indeed from the late Bronze Age. It's a fresco. And here's another scene of war from the late Bronze Age, uh, showing uh, a line of armed men. Quite what they're doing is somewhat mysterious. Okay. Let me turn to another example of misconceptions about the Trojan War. Many people, even some scholars, speak of the siege of Troy. But there was no siege of Troy, not even in Homer. In Homer, the Greeks set up an armed camp by the sea, somewhere between two and five miles away from the walls of Troy. They never surrounded the city or sealed it off from the outside world. They tried to storm Troy's walls, but failed. The steady pressure of Greek raids and the elimination and battle of some of Troy's most prominent leaders weakened the enemy. In the end, however, only an act of espionage opened the city to Greece's murderous revenge. In archaic Greece, most wars consisted of pitched battles between two armies of heavy-armed infantrymen. Battles were bloody but decisive and short. The conflict was settled in a day. Cavalry played a role but only a small role, and chariotry was largely non-existent. Spears and swords were the main weapons. Arrows and slings had little significance. Fortifications were primitive, and city walls were rarely stormed, let alone subjected to siege. War was a soldier's business. Civilians behind the walls had relatively little to fear. Months-long encampment in enemy territory was unheard of. Ferrying large overseas invasion forces was equally rare. Warships had rams, and the object of naval battle was to destroy the enemy's ships. But late Bronze Age warfare was almost the opposite. Raiding was the main military activity. Pitch battle was rare. Armies encamped in enemy territory and fanned out on raids, often taking enemy towns and enslaving the inhabitants. Cities were heavily fortified and were subject to siege, and more often assault, often under cover of darkness or with the help of traitors within the walls. A city that had refused surrender was subject to destruction, its property looted, and its civilians killed or enslaved. Archers and slingers both played major roles in combat, and most infantry had to make do with light armor. Heavy armor was for an elite few. Chariots were an important weapon, but only the rare messenger rode on horseback. Warships had no rams, and the object of naval people was to kill the enemy's marines and sailors. But how could Homer, who lived much later, have known anything about the Trojan War? The Iliad and the Odyssey both represent versions of very old stories, themes, and sometimes words, all carefully selected and revised. The poems reach more or less their current form sometime between about 750 and 525 B.C., with most scholars opting for a date around 700 B.C. Although many are persuaded that one poet, undoubtedly a genius, composed both epics, it is not possible to say whether there is one Homer or many Homers. So when this book refers to Homer, it is speaking loosely. Oops, well, forget about that phrase. Although writing disappeared from Greece between about 1150 and 750 B.C., 
writing did not disappear from the Near East, including Anatolia. Information about the Trojan War might have been preserved in writing in Anatolia and eventually made its way to Greece. There may even have been a Trojan poem about the destruction of Troy, a Trojan Iliad, if you will. Given the prominence of the theme of the destruction of cities in ancient Near Eastern literature, given how common lamentations over cities were, it would in fact be surprising if no lamentation for Troy had been written in some Anatolian language. But Homer was not dependent only on written sources. As you know, myth and epic each are derived from a Greek word having to do with speech, and the Iliad and Odyssey are oral poetry, composed as they were sung, and based in large part on time-honored phrases and themes. What made an oral poet successful was the ability to rework old material in ways that were new, but not too new, because the audience was counting on hearing the classic story. As a servant of the muse, Homer was also the memory of his people. The purpose of epic and myth was not just to entertain or to explain, but to preserve a group's past. But could that be done in an illiterate society? Could it be done by oral tradition? There is some evidence that early peoples around the world were able to remember natural phenomena for millennia, and that they did so through oral tradition alone. The Klamath Indians of the American Pacific Northwest, for example, tell an old story about what sounds a great deal like the volcanic eruption that created Oregon's Crater Lake. Geologists date that eruption to 7,675 years ago. The Arakara of the state of North Dakota preserved the tale of their migration from the Rocky Mountains to the Great Plains. It fits with the archaeological record of events between A.D. 1100 and 1350. And then there is Homer. In the Iliad, it is possible that he refers indirectly to a massing of all five visible planets, Venus, Mercury, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter, which took place in early 1953 BC, well over a thousand years before he sang. What this shows is that some oral traditions have a historical core, but no oral tradition can be taken at its face value. All have been coded and plated with fiction. In the case of Homer, it can be presumed that the Trojan War indeed happened, that a Greek army attacked Troy and sacked it. But the rest of the details in the Iliad, as supplemented by the Odyssey, need to be analyzed before they can assume, be assumed to be true. Well, so much for methodology. What about the questions of this seminar? What about the questions of what motivated men to fight, how they were recruited, and what they thought about fighting and killing? Well, we know from the Linear B tablets, as well as from um, other Near Eastern sources, and the Linear B tablets are tablets, records written in primitive uh, writing system. They were Greek, and they were written in the late Bronze Age. They survived by accident. They tell us that the Greek states uh, engaged in the recruitment and perhaps the conscription of rowers and possibly of archers and uh, of charioteers as well. And from what we know of Egypt and other late Bronze Age societies, this makes perfect sense. We know a great deal about Egyptian, for instance, excuse me, about conscription, for instance, in New Kingdom Egypt. 
But the Greek army was led by nobles, not by ordinary men. And the Greeks did not have to worry about creating a warrior ethos when it came to the nobles. The nobles were bred for war, and the same is true of the charioteers and the, quote, good foot soldiers, it's from the Iliad, that formed a significant minority of the fighting forces. And the army probably included a greater number of archers and to a lesser extent slingers than Homer lets on, and at least some of them had to have been trained fighters. All of these combatants could be said to have a certain amount of heart, that's thumos, valor, that's alke, hustle, that's spedo, and even battle lust, or harme. But that still left a large group of, quote, bad men, men who, quote, let go of hateful ares, and men who would not fight unless they were forced. The ordinary soldiers were probably poorly armed, poorly trained, and endowed with but little experience of war, since after all, the two sides had to reach deep into the manpower pool to field such large armies. To wage war with all their strength, such men needed either to be inspired by the personal example of their officers or shamed by abuse worthy of a drill sergeant. If neither tack worked, they could simply be stationed between the charioteers and reliable infantrymen, the so-called bulwark of war, thereby forcing them either to fight or die. And what was their experience in what I have, I have identified as the uh, main act of the Trojan War? What was their experience when it came to sacking cities? Well, if we just look at the map again for a moment, here you see a map of the late Bronze Age Aegean, here you see Troy itself, located at the entrance to the Dardanelles, a very strategic position, then is now. Here you see the Aegean Sea and some of the famous cities of this period, Mycenae, Tiryns, um, the area of Thessaly where Achilles came from. To look at a, another map of this period from a different perspective, not from Homer's perspective, but from the perspective of archaeology, one of the most important pieces of information that we have is a, a one underwater excavation of a shipwreck, a merchant ship from a, uh, the Turkish site known as Ulu Burun, which I think means nose point. And um, it tells us about the uh, great degree of contact, the thick contact, if you will, between the Near Eastern world and the world of Mycenaean Greece. Uh, the weapons uh, and other artifacts found there indicate this, as do a number of other shipwrecks that have been discovered in this period, uh, from this period, excuse me. As you can also see, we know that in the late Bronze Age in central Anatolia, roughly around Ankara, was the center of a mighty kingdom, the Hittites, and uh, with all likelihood, in western Anatolia on the Aegean coast, there was a kingdom known as Arzawa, somewhat south of Troy. Other kingdoms, other parts of the geog map of Anatolia have been filled in with considerable probability in recent years as well. If we look closely at the Troad, you can see that the city of Troy, uh, located here in the northwestern part, near the Scamander River. The Troad, though, is a much wider place. And it, there were a number of small towns and even small cities 
scattered uh, around it, uh, connected in some way or other uh, to the ruling uh, family of Troy. Aeneas, for instance, is said to have come from the upper valley of the Scamander River, the valley of Darganus, uh, which is a rich agricultural valley and very separate geographically from the plain of Troy. Here is uh, a view of that plain of Troy. Here you can see the Aegean Sea. The city of Troy is over here off the map. Here is the entrance to the Hellespont. And here is the Gallipoli Peninsula, better known from a more recent war, of course. Thank you. These, as you know, are the most impressive walls or among the impressive walls of the citadel of Troy. One of the remarkable features of archaeology in the last uh, decade or so has been the discovery not just of the citadel but of the lower city of Troy, which increases the size of the site in the late Bronze Age from about four to five acres to about 70 acres. And we found some of the defense work of that city as well. But this gives you some idea of just how difficult it would have been to take uh, the city by assault. Here you have some sense of human scale uh, in, uh, coming back a bit, pulling back a bit from the same site. This is a gateway complex on the eastern side of the citadel. And here we are in one of two possible sites for where the Greeks might have beached their ships. In the Bronze Age, this entire area was open to the sea. It's conceivable there was a harbor here. The city of Troy is located right here <coughs> on this ridge. And if we follow Homer, the Greeks would have been camped here within sight of Troy. But honestly, it is more likely that the Greeks were camped south of the city, uh, just on the other side of this, uh, uh, this point, uh, uh, where uh, the excavators have discovered the site of the ancient Trojan harbor. Here, by the way, is the island of Tenedos, which features prominently in the Iliad. Again, a map of the Troad. As I said, sacking cities was no sideshow to the Trojan War. In the ninth year of the war, Achilles claimed to have destroyed no less than 23 cities, which comes to about uh, 2.5 attacks annually. If the number 23 is an exaggeration, it is not out of line with Bronze Age hyperbole. For instance, the eastern Anatolian king Anum Hirbi claims that the enemy destroyed 12 of his towns, and Hittite texts about another war record similar claims. Sacking responded to the strategic reality. If the Greeks had originally hoped to terrify Troy into surrender when they landed, they failed. But the Greeks did not respond with passivity. Instead, faced with Troy's effective strategy of forward defense, the Greeks employed a counter-strategy of slow strangulation. They raided Trojan territory, especially beyond the well-defended plain of Troy, and they carried out two sorts of operations, ambushes of civilians outside Troy's walls and assaults on cities friendly to Troy. The Greek camp at Troy had several functions, and one of them was that of naval station. It made a convenient jumping-off place for attacks. Since the Greeks enjoyed command of the sea, they could strike the long Trojan coastline virtually at will. So they ransacked cities, carried off Trojan women, 
treasure, and livestock, killed some leading men, ransomed others, and sold most of the rest as slaves on the island of Lemnos, excuse me, the islands of Lemnos, Imbros, and Samos. Greek plundering raids, of which the Iliad offers many anecdotes, served several purposes. Loot was a morale booster for wavering Greek soldiers. The raids offered a break from the boredom of camp life. And more important, the raids leveraged food and fodder for the poorly supplied Greek forces. For example, Odysseus and his men stormed and sacked the city of Ismarus in Thrace, a Trojan ally. They did this on their way home after the war, but the action surely mirrors sacking during the war proper. Livestock loomed large in the late Bronze, Age, Bronze Age's list of booty. Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Hittite texts, for instance, often list livestock as proud prizes of war. Among the Greeks, raiding cattle, horses, and sheep was honorable, profitable, and violent. When, for example, the Greek king Atarisia, possibly to be identified with Atreus, and possibly not, when he went after the kingdom of Maduwata in southwestern Anatolia around 1400 BC, he targeted women, cattle, and sheep, not necessarily in that order. Homer mentions various wars in Greece fought over cattle thieving, and it was not unusual for noblemen to die in the process. For example, Helen's brother, the Spartan prince Castor, of Castor and Pollux fame, was killed in one such raid, and cattle raiding could disrupt an enemy's economy and society. For instance, one Melanippus, son of Hicetion, was a kinsman of Hector and a bigwig in the town of Percote on the Dardanelles. And here you see Percote. When the Greeks came after his cattle, he prudently moved to Troy and was put up by Priam. Melanippus saved his skin and lived to fight in the Trojan army, but he was no longer a force of law and order in Percote, assuming that the town was not destroyed by the Greeks. Slaving was lucrative as well. Anatolian slaves were prized in Greece, no doubt in part because of racist stereotypes about slavish Easterners. Such bigotry was the common currency of later Greece. But Anatolians fetched high prices in the Bronze Age for a more practical reason. In general, they were better educated, more sophisticated, and more highly skilled than ordinary Greeks. Civilization had deeper roots in the East than in Greece. Literacy was more widespread, cities more common. Myth records that Greeks imported engineers from Lycia in southwestern Anatolia to build the stunning fortification walls of the city of Tiryns in the Peloponnesus. Just one small example of the many advantages of importing Anatolian skilled labor to Greece. Achilles once describes the attacks on the cities as a matter of, quote, making war on other men over their women. But he's speaking to Agamemnon and bitter over their quarrel about a woman. So arguably, he's just exaggerating. Captive women, however, feature prominently on Egyptian and Hittite booty lists, as well as on Linear B tablets that inventory the wealth of Greek kings. And yet, women were only a small part of the loot that the Greeks amassed. Finally, to go back to the strategic advantages or tactical advantages of uh, attacking other cities, the assaults hurt Troys, which had connections of marriage and presumably of friendship and alliance with at least some of them. Some of these cities gave Troy expensive gifts, quote-unquote, of gold and silver, 
and others might have sold supplies to the beleaguered cities. Of the towns that Achilles sacked, 11 were in the vicinity of Troy. Some of the ones that are named in the Iliad are Larissa, Crisae, Lernessus, it's just a guess as to where Nessus was, and Thebae, just a guess as to where Thebae was. Abydos and Arisbe are named as well. Okay. Greek attacks harassed civilians and insulted Trojan honor, and they picked off vulnerable allies of Troy. Unable to lay siege to Troy, the Greeks inflicted an indirect punishment on it. It was a dirty war. The Greeks considered it fair game to attack any Trojan civilian who ventured out to do business, even women going to the spring to fetch water. Homer, for example, mentions two springs of the Scamander River that flowed into basins. Quote, and here I'm using Alexander Pope's translation, where Trojan dames, ere yet alarmed by Greece, washed their fair garments in the days of peace. We hear nothing about Trojan counter-expeditions to defend the cities which the Greeks attacked. Either the Trojans lacked the resources to protect any place except their home territory, or Homer has left out the details. Archaeology shows that two towns at the southern end of the Trojan plain, so that's roughly over here, two towns there were fortified. They were located outside the entrance to a pass that led southward through the hills of the Mount Ida Massif. And you see Mount Ida. Conceivably, Trojan soldiers manned these forts and sallied out to attack Greeks traveling overland. But the Greeks seem to have had no such worries further away from Troy, on the periphery of the Troad. Taking Troy would have been hard work. Taking Thebes under Placos was a romp in the meadow, at least by comparison. Achilles looks back on sacking cities as an exhausting, bloody, sleepless business. After the war, King Nestor of Pylos remembers Achilles as having especially shown in sea raids. And well, he might have, since Nestor profited from one such raid led by Achilles on the island of Tenedos, where the, from the spoils of which Nestor was a, awarded the lovely Hecamede, hostess, servant, and bedmate. She was the daughter of a great man named Arsinous, and she had beautiful hair and divine looks. The Iliad specifies six of the cities attacked by, sacked by Achilles, besides Thebes under Placos. They were Lernessus and Pedasos, and Pedasos was conceivably here at the later site of Assos. The islands of Lesbos, be located just here. Tenidos, over here. Skyros, way back uh, in the center of the Aegean, North Aegean. These are all islands, and presumably the main town is meant in each instance, as Homer specifies in the case of Skyros. On the east coast of the island of Lesbos, excavation found a Bronze Age Greek city. Uh, at Thermae that was violently destroyed in the 1200s. Each of the islands supplied a beautiful woman to one of the Greek heroes. In addition to Nestor's Hecamede, there were Iphis, a Scyrian woman who slept with Patroclus, and Diomedes, daughter of Phorbus of Lesbos, who slept with Achilles, at least in the absence of his favorite female, Briseis. Among the many trophies in Agamemnon's collection were seven beautiful women from Lesbos. Now let's turn to attacks on the mainland. Here going down the coast, the southwestern coast of the Troad, this is roughly the site of ancient Hrisae, where the priest uh, comes to 
uh, complained to Agamemnon about the capture of his daughter. Actually, she was captured in another raid. Remember that in the first book of the Iliad. And this is Cape Lactin. I want, to, I want you to look at the site of Cape Lectin. And I want you to think about a Greek raiding expedition. Um, we can imagine for various re- reasons that this would be an expedition of about 3,000 men or 60 pentaconters, 60 warships, assuming the soldiers did their own rowing. In addition to spearmen, the Greek force would have required archers and slingers. They would also have had to have ladders, preferably to be raised in climbs by veterans of earlier assaults. And the best case scenario, they would also have brought a battering ram. The mission began with the long ships putting out from the shore at Troy and heading south. They would have rounded the rocky coast here at Cape Lecton, or striking rhythmically in the Salt Sea. Heading eastward along the southern shore of the Troad, they would have had to their starboard the island of Lesbos, its outline shimmering in the day's heat. They would have passed scrub-covered hills and sheer gray cliffs, olive-terraced valleys, and the distant braying of mules. They would have passed the dry gullies of the summer snow, when the uh, summer months, when the snow has long since disappeared from the slopes of Mount Ida above. Finally, they would have reached Mysia. The Myrmidons would have leaped off the vessels as they were anchoring, following their chief Achilles toward the walled Acropolis on the hill above. On the hill above, they had a rich city for the sacking, beginning with the herds at its outskirts. I want to talk a little bit about the sack of the town of Lernessus. We can't identify its location. Uh, quite possibly, it will be located here in this plain, uh, in uh, what was the southern part of the Troad, ancient Mysia, but we're not sure. Homer tells us a bit about this sack. We know that the assault began with a cattle raid. We know about other assaults in the Iliad that begin with a cattle raid. Achilles almost caught a very big man among the livestock. Aeneas, son of Anchises, prince of the junior branch of the royal house of Troy, and a leader in battle and council. Miraculously, Aeneas outran Achilles all the way to Lernessus, whose destruction he somehow managed to survive. As Aeneas explained afterwards, Zeus preserved me. He roused my courage and my nimble knees. A battle took place within sight of the town. Achilles killed two Lernessian princes, Mynes and Epistrophus, both of whom died fighting in a battle of spears. Their father, Evanus, son of Selipiades and king of Lernessus, was presumably killed as well. Achilles also did in three brothers of the noblewoman Briseis, who saw them die, as well as seeing her husband, Mynes, and presumably she watched the battle from a tower in the, on the city walls. Now in Homer, not only Briseis, but Helen, Andromache and Hecuba all watch battles from the walls. I want to go back to a slide earlier. Okay, some of you may have noticed this. It's not the world's best preserved slide. This is a fresco from Mycenae. As you can see, this is a city. And there's a, a siege going on. And what do we have here? We have a woman watching the siege. 
Now, this is not the only example in Bronze Age Aegean art. There's terrific examples in uh, Minoan art from the island of Thera, from fresco there, of actually women watching a war scene outside. They're so striking that, uh, as many of you will know, the art historian Sarah Morris uh, has suggested that the Homeric poems are based on stories that were already prominent when these scenes were painted. So that the stories and some of the stories in the Iliad go back much earlier in the Bronze Age. But I'm not convinced of that myself because we have other evidence from outside uh, of the Minoan Mycenaean world that it was not unusual for women to uh, watch sieges. For example, when the pharaoh Kamos, around 1550 BC, took a fleet up the Nile to attack the city of Avaris, he saw the enemy's women peering out at him from the walls. Better documented, later periods of ancient Greek history offer a few examples of women on the walls during a siege. Nor should we discount the morale value to the defenders of seeing their women on the walls. Indeed, both sides in Homer evoke the women and the families for whom they are fighting. And finally, the presence of women also served as a taunt to the enemy, with the implication that even women could stand up to them. I think, by the way, that this is a much underrated factor in uh, the stratagems of ancient warfare. In the Persian invasion of uh, Athens, Persian invasion of Greece in 480 BC, the Persians prominently have the first female admiral in history, Artemisia, and not because they were feminists or equal opportunity employers, but because they wanted to insult the Greeks. They wanted to say, you are such wimps that even a woman can fight you. And it worked. They did insult the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks were driven quite mad by this. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough for the Trojans to win the war, for the Persians to win the war, but it was uh, an explicit tactic. I expect that the use of women on the presence, positioning of women on these walls had a lot to do with the motives of uh, why men fought. And if you want an example of loving war, this is an odd one indeed. To return to the siege of Lernessus, we would expect that Perseus retreated to the inner city well before the Greeks breached the walls. No details survive of how the Greeks stormed the fortifications, but their victory was total. Following usual custom, the men presumably were slaughtered, enslaved, or ransomed. Perseus herself was taken captive along with the other women of Lernessus. She ended up as Achilles' mistress. And by the way, we have many, many examples from the ancient Near East of uh, conquerors taking, awe, taking women as prizes and bragging about it. As she was led off, Briseis cried. She couldn't get over the shock and horror. She had seen her three brothers and her husband all killed, and now she would have to sleep with the killer. But Patroclus comforted her. As she said to him later, thy friendly hand upreared me from the plain and dried my sorrows for a husband slain. Achilles' conduct on his raid says a lot about the laws of war, such as they were in the late Bronze Age. Achilles might well have nodded in approval at the Hittite king Hattushilish I and his description of a victory. Quote, I trampled the country of Hasua like a lion, and like a lion I slew it, and I brought dust down upon them, and I took all their possessions with me and filled my capital city with it. Or as Pharaoh Seti I uh, in the early 13th century BC, puts it, 
An instant of trampling the foe is better than a day of jubilation. For Seti, trampling meant slaughter, annihilation, and filling valleys with corpses stretched out in their own blood. And he specifically singles out for the slaughter heirs as well as their fathers. And then there's the pharaoh Merneptah, 1212 to 1203 BC. His troops took over 9,000 hands and penises as trophies in a battle in 1208 BC with Libyan aggressors. And this was common practice in late Bronze Age Egypt. Judging by such acts, the Greeks were not especially brutal. They were playing the game by the rules of the day. By Seti's rules, killing heirs was common sense. And um, I go on to explain, don't have time to go into it today, that on his atta- the attack on another city, Thebe under Placos, uh, the hometown of Andromache, Hector's wife, it begins with Achilles coming uh, running up and uh, allegedly killing single-handedly the seven princes uh, uh, who were heirs to the throne of the town who were engaged in a civilian activity at the time. They were herding their, their cattle. Now, uh, what does this say about Achilles? Well, the counts, was he a war criminal? The counsel for the defense might reply that these princes were not civilians, but potential soldiers who could have put on their armor in minutes and that Achilles had every right to round them up. Council might even argue that the princes were killed resisting arrest. After all, Achilles' usual practice was not to kill his princes, his enemies, but rather to ransom them or to sell them into slavery on one of the Aegean islands. As he explains in the 10th year of the war, when he had turned more brutal, I used to like to spare Trojans, and I took many and alive and sold them. A case in point is the Trojan prince Lycaon, one of Priam's sons, Achilles ambushed the lad one night while Lacan was in the royal orchard outside Troy, furtively cutting young figwood to use for chariot rails. In other words, he was on a military mission. Achilles' operation was less clear-cut. It was no expedition to sack a city, but something more modest, a stakeout. It brought little glory, but potentially a lot of profit, and the great Achilles did not hesitate to stoop to conquer. Lacan was a valuable commodity. Achilles spared the boy and sold him for a good price, 100 oxen, as well as a gift to Patroclus of a Phoenician silver mixing bowl. The buyer was a Greek nobleman, Eunius, on the island of Lemnos, the son of the famous Jason the Argonaut. Luckily for Lycaon, a family friend stepped in, and he ransomed Lycaon for 300 oxen, which means that Eunius of Lemnos made a hefty profit, assuming that the Phoenician silver bowl cost considerably less than 200 oxen. Once freed, Lycaon took ship for Arisbe, a city on the Dardanelles, and then made his way home to Troy. Lycaon was not a civilian, but he would not have been better off if he had been, since civilians had few rights in Bronze Age warfare. Um, If his city was conquered and he was caught, any civilian would be happy to suffer Lycaon's fate and be shipped off into slavery but it was better not to be caught, even if that meant heading for the hills. Consider, for example, the people of Apassa, probably the later Ephesus, south of Troy, capital of the western Anatolian kingdom of Arzala, conquered by the Hittite king Marshilish II around 1315 BC. Most of the population fled, many of them to nearby Mount Arinanda, probably today Samsundai, the classical Mount Michele. This is a long and high summit climbing from sea level to 4,000 feet. 
Mershilish reports that the terrain was too rocky and overgrown for ascending on horseback. So his army went after the refugees on foot, allegedly with the king himself in the lead. It was, says Mershilish, a battle against the mountain, and the king won. The loser, of course, was not the mountain, but the huge mass of Urzawan refugees, the bulk of whom, says Mershilish, were starved out. Before winter came, the Urzawans surrendered, even though they no doubt knew what lay ahead. Like other conquered peoples before them, they would be shipped back to Hati as deportees, quote-unquote, a class of unfree laborers condemned to menial work, they and their children. Mershilish says that the total number of deportees was beyond measure, but that the royal share alone came to 15,500 people. He's lying. Bronze Age sources always lie, but it's another story. Whatever booty the Greeks got on their raids belonged to the entire army and not to individuals. It was then shared out according to the number of men who had participated in the action, which the leader entitled, with the leader entitled to an extra cut. Each man's share was known as his geras, his gift of honor or prize. But sometimes it was a poison gift. Fights over the division of the spoils are documented in later Greek history, and so were mutinies by sailors over their pay. When in the tenth year of the war, a quarrel over plunder broke out in the Greek camp, there were probably few people who were surprised. And that was not the only way in which raiding proved to be a mixed blessing for the Greeks. Raiding prolonged the war, and protracted wars are often as hard on the attacker as on the defender. A case in point. The Greeks may have amassed mountains of loot in their beachhead camp, but the walls of Troy stood strong as ever. The result was frustration, exhaustion, and anger among the Greeks. Although he is one of the few who remained optimistic, Agamemnon nicely summarizes the Greek army's gloom. Now nine long years of mighty Jove are run since first the labors of this war begun. Our cordage torn, decayed our vessels lie, and scarce ensure the wretched power to fly. The Greeks had worked themselves weary, but by some measures, Troy was winning the war. In order to prevail, the Greeks had to conquer. The Trojans just had not to lose. As long as they sat tight and remained patients, the, Persians, the Trojans might be able to wait out the Greeks. They might even come up with some way of weakening the enemy and thereby sending him home sooner. In short, Greek victories at places like Lesbos, and Tenedos, or Lernesis, and Hypoplatian Thebes gladdened the heart of shining Achilles, the great runner, the sacker of cities, the man who called himself the best of the Greeks. But that did not mean the Trojan War was over. Far from it. In some ways, the Trojan War was just beginning. Thank you. Okay, it's time for the Q&A. So let me just have some water and have at me. John. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about this or the mechanics of the sieging? Uh, if you're this you know, massive case of predation, and presumably people are going to get killed or enslaved, don't produce any more, particularly don't produce animals because they're going to be, by the time you get one that's worth anything, to be stolen. Mm-hmm. So you think that the siege is basically, that it'd be this sort of uh, parasitic character in which they killed the host eventually. So yeah. it's hard to see doing this for 10 years, for example. Oh, no, I, I think... I- for reasons that I don't want to get into, um, I, th- I think we can prove that it wasn't a 10-year war. But I think 
just it seemed to be impossible almost. Totally impossible. Example. Totally impossible. We're talking about a much shorter conflict than 10 years, significantly longer. Uh, a big war, but much, much shorter than 10 years. Um, so, um, yes, that would make absolutely no sense. Uh, Thucydides, trying to make sense of it, perhaps, or reporting a tradition that tried to make sense of it, said that the Greeks had to waste mo- most of their men using them as farmers in the Gallipoli Peninsula, which was a famously fertile area. Uh, that, and the reason the war took 10 years is precisely your problem, that they had to feed themselves, that uh, it wouldn't do to kill their host, so they had to simply farm, and therefore they never had enough men to fight a proper battle, and that's why the Silly War lasted so long. Uh, it's a reasonable idea, but I don't think it's true. Yes. But if we know how big Troy was, or how big the civilian mm-hmm. area was, and we probably have an idea of density, we should be able to get a sense of population, yep. and we should be able to figure out how many men of military age there are. Yep. Now that makes, um, since it takes about three to one attackers to defenders to actually storm a city, maybe, and their numbers were not sufficient for that, you have some kind of way of ballparking yep. how many men you have on right. the Greek side. Well, those are all excellent questions. I try to do precisely the sort of calculations um, you suggest. Um, And I think there are lots of reasons why an alliance along the lines that Homer suggests the Trojans of having, why something like that is credible. Because from the Hittite sources, we know precisely of those kinds of alliances in southwest Anatolia. But even if you allow for all those men um, there, are not, there are not a whole lot of armies anywhere in the Bronze Age, late Bronze Age going in expeditions that can be credibly put at more than about 10,000 men. So I think we're talking about much, much smaller army, army than Homer is talking about. But that's partly because um, I believe that Homer is writing in the vein of bronze, late Bronze Age rhetoric um, in which competitive exaggeration is the name of the game. I think that's part of what he's doing. So we're talking about a much smaller uh, host on either side. Uh, Homer does mention that there are uh, has supplies coming in from the islands um, to uh, feed them. Uh, because so clearly his audience too is wondering about this very problem. Yeah, I'm curious about the cause because the the topic of the lecture series brings you have class people are sort of dedicated work for its own purpose. So the cause is in Helen, right? How does that much that? Right? In your narrative, it sounds an awful lot like why, for example, Julius Caesar used to fight in France, right? They were basically large slave sort of mm-hmm. grabbing expeditions. So are you, are you postulating for sort of like a class of people who essentially sort of 
fought wars for sort of profit, that these are sort of, sort of like rogue elements running around these? I don't think they're rogue elements. But sort of integrated elements, I guess, in the city states who see war essentially as a profit making okay. enterprise, right? That, that predation. Yeah, is what these are predators. Like Caesar, you sort of march off into France. Well, like fall. Caesar in some way, like Vikings in other ways, these guys are predators. That's what they do. And they've been doing it demonstrably by archaeology. We can demonstrate that they've been doing it at least since around 1425 BC. Um, that's what. Greeks do in the late Bronze Age. They're, they they pray, <laughs> and for fun and profit, uh, partly so that they're not preying on each other, which they also do for fun and profit in the, in the late Bronze Age. That's that's pretty much the pattern of what happens in the late Bronze Age. And in um, more uh, settled areas um, like Mesopotamia and Egypt, it's more states are uh, much uh, better organized than they are in Greece. Uh, in Greece, which is on the fringes of the civilized world, they're a little more rough and ready uh, uh, than in the center. But yeah, that's what they do. Leif? Uh, do, do we have, do scholars have any idea how they're actually taking these cities and these raids, and particularly if they run up against a fortified city? Are they actually yep. stopping and building the siege equipment? Yeah. Um, for the Greeks, it's a problem. We have questions about the Greeks. It's no problem or question for the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians or Assyrians. We have, have loads of documentation of them building siege engines. Uh, for instance, uh, the textbooks often say that nobody in the Bronze Age had siege engines, but lots of people in the Bronze Age had siege engines. We have lots of evidence of it. Scaling ladders, scaling ladders on wheels. Uh, if the doors weren't, uh, they they. The, remember, these walls were generally stone bases with mud brick superstructure, so they would try to cut through the mud brick. Um, they um, would uh, try to burn down the gate, so you'd want to make sure your gate was covered with uh, metal so it wasn't easily burnt, and so on and so forth. Yes, I mean, they, they and they had sappers as well. So there were lots of things they could do to try to take a city by assault. about taking cities, looting cities, and destroying cities. To me, that's sort of uh, three different things. And I'm wondering, say, drawing, according to both the archaeological record and the literature record, was destroyed, and that's that. And the, I'm sorry, and that's that? And, uh, and, uh, and it wasn't resampled for a very long time. And that seems to be not so much sacking and looting but strategic reasons. Uh, how, how many parallels do that sort of behavior? Forgive me, but uh, uh, Korfman's excavations would suggest a different model. Um, it now, um, uh, on their account, which I think is pretty sensible, uh, Troy was immediately repopulated. Um, it, as you say, it would be really problematic if, if it was wiped off the map. Uh, but the, the pattern that we have over and over again in ancient history is that these cities are not wiped off the map. Uh, they are resettled. And what we even have f from Mesopotamia is we have laments for cities that say, my city was destroyed, uh, woe is me, when it is demonstrable through archaeology and other evidence that the city was immediately resettled. So, and, and that's clearly, if we take the archaeological evidence, that is what happened in Troy, that it is resettled, that there's hardly a break. Ah, that's an excellent question. 
And um, I wrestled with that myself, and I think it has to do with uh, one word, and that's ships. Um, I don't think that much of the East was much interested in naval warfare. And I think that one of the Greeks' competitive advantage was that they were, and that made it much easier for them uh, to, uh, to cross the sea. Again, and, and another reason might be simply, you know, the Willie Sutton principle that you rob, he robbed banks because that's where the money is. Uh, there just wasn't that much money in Greece compared to what you could get further east. So that's what I did there. Probably in theory it wasn't possible. Uh, there was a lot of local population, uh, but in practice it's it's kind of difficult to organize all those people. First of all, uh, remember the people who are really good at war are a very small class of people. And um, it's questionable whether the Trojans had proportionally as many of these people as the Greeks did. Um, if the Trojans had them, then it's kind of interesting that they're involved in virtually no military enterprises throughout this period, except for the Battle of Kadesh, where they seem to be present. Uh, secondly, one thing we do know about Troy uh, from the Hittite record, and that would be reasonable to surmise just from uh, other records, is that uh, all the inhabitants of the Troad hated each other. Uh, in the Iliad, for instance, Aeneas hates Priam. Uh, and, you know, can't stand the Trojan ruling family, and he's fuming with anger all the time. So I think it would have been quite difficult for them to uh, get everybody together. As I listen to your description, I couldn't decide in my mind whether they really are great at war or whether they're just really good at predation. Yeah. I think they spend most of their time fighting the undefended or the, the uh, easy to prey on. You really didn't tell us too much about how they perform up against you know, like armed and prepared armies. I presume they prevail there as well. But it, I'm wondering what part of this romantic history of them as great warriors is just romance and which part of it is real in the sense that they were actually superior in combat against you know, other forces. It, you've touched on a very good point and um, I hope you forgive me if I, if I say, read the book. <laughs> but that's an excellent question. Was there an answer to the question why they didn't band together, that they had their own internal squabbles, and so they couldn't band together? Yeah. Because uh, according to social science, theory, this shouldn't happen because they faced a common enemy. And you would think after, if the war was 10 years, but even but, for half that long, it, you'd still think, well, that might be the explanation for why it wasn't 10 years, because you think if your cities are falling uh, for 10 years or being looted for 10 years, that will bring them together no matter what their squabbles. That may be, but since I disposed of that in the beginning of the book, I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> uh, 
college, you talk about recruitment, you talk about the so-called bad soldiers or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, where did they get, how did they get these guys? Were they impressed forcibly? Oh, we don't know. I mean, um, who were they? Where did they uh, when uh, we, Linear B tablets were first deciphered in the 1950s. These are uh, records, uh, bureaucratic records of scribes in the uh, Greek, sev- several of the uh, late Bronze Age Greek kingdoms, Mycenaean, term of art, Mycenaean kingdoms. And the first generation of people who studied them said, this is oriental despotism. Uh, they literally said, this is a totalitarian state. Everybody was down to the sheep. Every, every living creature was controlled by the bureaucracy. Uh, it was um, whatever metaphor you want for it. Um, as you can tell from my tone, I don't think this is true, and I think the most uh, reassessments would suggest that um, um, that uh, the uh, these city state these these kingdoms are rather loosey goosey, uh, and that central authority was not particularly strong. Uh, and uh, you know, I think they would offer people rewards, uh, and the usual thing: rewards and punishments. We're going to, we know that conscription existed in the ancient Near East, uh, and we know that people, the draft dodgers also existed in the ancient Near East. Um, we have lists of rowers um, from uh, Pylos. Um, in fact, in some ways, we know more about the rowers of Bronze Age Greece than we do of classical Greece. Um, Pylos in the southwestern Peloponnesis, uh, and we know that some of them are being paid with land. So I think it would vary from place to place. But I, don't th- I think only the military elite would, uh, would have heavy armor. There seem to be some places that specialized in archery. Uh, archery is a specialty of Anatolia, but Crete, for various reasons, is very good at archery as well. There would be an implication of this of heavy desertion. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's not so easy. Did you lose 80, 90% of your men over time? Did you lose 80, 90% of your men? The fact they that's an excellent question. I don't really know. I don't know the answer. I'm not sure that we have the evidence that would tell us that, but we know that desertion, uh, that would tell us percentage, but we know desertion's a big problem. Desertion's a problem. Griping is a problem. Uh, what you see, yeah, no, what you see in the beginning of the Iliad, uh, discontented army, we have a lot of that in Egyptian sources and other sources. Uh, and these kingdoms are always looking for reliable warriors who are not going to desert. So yeah, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. Bringing warriors go home. I mean, one of the other good, I think, sub themes of this lecture series has been that domestic, you know, domestic colleagues have trouble sort of integrating these extraordinarily militaristic classes. How do you respond to that and the rest of it? So, so, I mean, if Achilles is now, you know, just a pirate, what happens when Achilles is making home, right? But I mean, what happens when Odysseus is the rescue? I mean, what, what do they do? I mean, if their job is to go off and Lose and well, what do you do with them at home? Where do they go? I guess my, my flippant answer is it's it's called Greek mythology. I mean, um, it's not a pretty picture. Look at Odyssey. Look at the Odyssey. It's just not a pretty picture of what happens when these guys get home. Both what the mice have been uh, doing while the cat was away and the revenge the cat gets. Um, but, but, I mean, a society couldn't sustain a class like that, that brought predation at home, right? We had to find some way to sort of like limit or constrain their behavior domestically, right? Or they'd uh, trite themselves out of existence. Well, of course. But so, so, I mean, if, this, if, if you have a class of, war, of brigand warriors that's going to sustain itself for any period of time, you have to have some kind of compromise domestically. Like, there's got to be some mechanism to accommodate them, is there not? Yeah. Um, the, the entire system of late Bronze Age kingdoms uh, is dislocated and in some sense comes crashing down 
uh, around uh, in the late 13th and especially in the early 12th century. And the truth is the scholarly world does not have a good explanation of that. But in recent years, there's been more and more study, there are more and more suggestions of looking for domestic problems in these kingdoms and quarrels and civil wars, the kind of thing that you're mentioning. Um, not just in Greece or even so much in Greece as in the Hittite case. Um, I think some people are looking at uh, foreign enemies, uh, uh, the sea peoples who are conveniently vague. Um, but there are reasons to look at other factors that we- as well, and one of them is precisely the sort of domestic instability that you suggest. I want to press you a little bit on something you said at the very beginning of the talk. You conceded something along the lines of, well, we're seeing the Trojan War through the lens of, well, maybe the 7th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a problem with questions of verisimilitude, if you yes. call it that. Let's think about the Aeneid, which of course is mythologically about exactly the same set of incidents in their aftermath, mm-hmm. being composed in an extremely different period of right. history. To what degree, you know, let's contrast these. How much are you seeing Roman warfare in the Aeneid, you know, and, and similarly can that elucidate what's going on with the Iliad? Well, I, I think uh, the Aeneid is, is, would be very problematic to take as evidence for a real Trojan War since it's written so much later and um, since uh, there's no evidence for Virgil as there is for Homer uh, representing an, a, a, Virgil being an oral poet. Now, you could argue that Virgil didn't make it all up and that he's basing much of what he has to say on, what, on earlier oral poetry, uh, which you know, raises big questions about the, the, the fragmentary epics and the epic cycle. Um, but I myself am very wary of evidence, say, from the Aeneid. But not so much of evidence from the Aeneid. I guess that's no. what I'm getting at. Well, I think it, it makes me less nervous as long as you handle it very carefully and depends on what you want to argue from evidence of the Iliad. My method is to take things from the Iliad uh, and to say, um, uh, I'm not saying these people really existed. I'm not saying any one of them ever existed, but I'm saying that the pattern of behavior we see in them can be documented in other Bronze Age sources uh, outside of epic poetry. And I'm saying that the pattern of narration that we find in Homer can be documented in other Bronze Age sources. And I'm saying that there are certain things that can be documented by archaeology. Of course, there are lots of times when I say maybe, probably, perhaps, possibility. Of course we can't use the Iliad as a historical source with, without um, huge grains of salt, without thinking about you know what Homer might try to be doing. I, as I also suggested, I think some of what Homer's doing is just to please his audience because they're looking at a really different kind of warfare, and that's what they want to hear. Mary, I was going to ask which one had the best gods, but I was like, what's the yeah, there's lots of evidence about epidemic disease and lots of speculation of its influence, a really interesting speculation on its influence on campaigns. I mean, uh, we know of uh, a Hittite expedition to Egypt, I think in the 14th century, that's really devastated by a plague that brings back to uh, the Hittite kingdom. Uh, we have other references to disease among armies. Um, it, it's inconceivable that there wasn't. I mean, if you look at what happened in the Gallipoli campaign, uh, 
uh, disease was a major problem. Uh, the, one of the very big questions was whether the Trojan plain was malarial in the Bronze Age or not. Uh, the uh, orthodox opinion uh, has been for several generations that malaria doesn't uh, hit the Mediterranean until m- much later, maybe in the Hellenistic period, maybe 300 BC or so. But there are a lot of people who are not satisfied with that, and it, there's no smoking gun. But there are lots of reasons to suspect that malaria was already a problem in the Trojan Plain um, at the time of the Trojan War, and that any invading army that encamped in this plain was going to have problems with malaria. So that's. It looks like it's pretty well watered. I haven't been on that, that side of the locally. It's pretty damn dry over there. It's very well watered, be, watered because of the rivers that come down from Mount Ida. Now, Part of what nowadays is the plain of Troy was was uh, open to the sea uh, in ancient times, and there was marshland, of course, between the sea and the shore. But there's been really terrific uh, geological studies of this whole area um, that have been done that make this sort of thing very clear. I think we have to uh, wrap things up here because I don't know if you've got classes. Uh, remember that next week, the last of the uh, presentations in the series is Nicholas Roger from Amsterdam University on British naval war of the long 18th century calling a warrior elite. But first of all, let me thank our astronomers for introducing us to the joy of science. <laughs>